You're tuned in to the MTGG Cable Cast, 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 where they cover Magic, the Gathering Finance. All right? You don't know about it? You're tuned in right now and get ready to learn some shit. Buckle your seatbelts and light a blunt and get ready for the MTG Cable Cast, 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 starring Reptar and Thirsty, them onion head motherfuckers. And this is me. Sick. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the newest episode of the Cabalcast, part two of three of the overall economy, recession, and you, and what it looks like as it relates to magic. So, as we said in the brief rundown in episode one, today's episode is going to be mostly about the LGS uh, and how it is impacted when the economy is like this, especially because of any topic you could cover in this, I think this is the one that most directly affects players outside of what impacts the player themselves. Uh, just because your LGS is where you go. Yeah. So, uh, with that, let's get her started. Yeah. So, the this is an area that I really have no experience in or no knowledge in because my area of expertise, if you want to call it that, is all business intelligence at the vendor level. And yeah. for us, it doesn't quite matter because our reach is national, sometimes international. So a recession in one place is usually buffered by the fact that the rest of the globe is doing pretty well. And so our orders remain fairly strong. Also, we bring in product from not just distros, but from players through that buy list. And as we talked about in the previous episode, when we you run an aggressive list during a recession, you can usually bring in enough to cover your bases. So you can move cards to collectors, to financiers, to, to players, whomever you need. And as we talked up front, distro really unaffected. So yeah. as, as a large vendor, we're still fine there. Our, our product keeps rolling in. It might be harder for us to get good numbers on a lot of high-end stuff, because that's yeah. moving on open marketplaces and the margins might be better there, like we talked about in the, the previous episode. So really that might be the only impact during recession, but the LGS is a, is a complete gray area and we talk all the time about margins and how they are razor thin at an LGS. So when inflation is up, when interest rates are up, when you see a recession and what might be a second quote-unquote, Great Recession in the United States. How exactly does an LGS weather the storm? So one of the big things here, and this is just, you know, for the understanding of you, the listener, when we talk about margins, uh, I'll use sealed product as an example, because sealed product obviously sells on TCG. It's something people buy. Now, a box of standard print run magic currently the wholesale on it is between 71 to 83 dollars depending on your account with your distributor mm -hmm. uh, and that is determined by your annual spend on all products how much of a discount you get on that stuff okay so now i have this box that i paid we'll say 75 dollars for yep. and i'm gonna sell it on tcg tcg is going to take 17 percent so i'm gonna try to sell it for a hundred dollars uh, I'm now making 
my my gross after fees is $83 on a box I paid $75 for. And I probably paid a 3% credit card processing fee on that. We'll hope that my card has a 3% reward percentage, so that's just canceled. That means I'm making $8 on that box. Yep. If I included shipping charges in my total on top of the 100 uh, So the margins are clearly razor thin on sealed product especially. Now on singles, it's a little bit different. You're usually paying 50 to 60% cash with a bump in credit. Uh, so after eating the 17% or whatever it is on TCG for my $10 card, uh, making like 830 gross, I paid $6 cash for it. So I've got $2 there. Now the other thing is I've got to pay someone to list that, ship it, pack it, whatever. Same with the box. Obviously one of those has more rooms for margin than the other. So one of the big things that LGSs do when the economy is in a downturn is they get less and less sealed product. A uh, prime example of this, if any of you have access to an account, for a couple of years, uh, Southern had a sale that was not a Magic Release Weekend sale, but it was a sale that happened every weekend a Magic set released. Oh, boy. They couldn't call it that because of trademarks. One of the big ticket items on there was Origins Fat Packs, and they had multiple pallets. This was stuff that showed up during the last big recession that Southern basically just sat on because stores didn't order it, yep. because they couldn't sell as much, because people weren't spending as much money. So it was still there and available. Uh, they just didn't pick it all up at once because if I normally sell two cases of a standard run product, uh, sometimes I'll order four or five cases and just hold on to the rest or sell it slowly over the course of a couple of years. Yep. Uh, yeah, as time goes. Uh, if I'm more worried about how much money my players are going to spend, I'm not going to order those extra cases. I'm going to set that money aside and hope that I can use it on something else. Because the reality of it is the vast majority of LGSs out there are very hand to mouth in how they pay their bills, how they survive. Uh, a lot of people that get into this industry get into it because they just like it, not because they have any kind of business sense or anything. So one of the biggest things you do is you cut back on sealed purchases. Okay. The other thing you may do is you may start combining tournament nights. Uh, you may start cutting back on hours and doing less open play. Let's try to do it when there's a tournament in, when people will sell us cards and when people will buy cards yep. because they need it right now for this event. Yep. And you already have and the staff on hand for those tournaments or for you know, your F&Ms or Tuesday Night Magic, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and then one of the other things, and this is something I found is a lot more common over the last couple of years, uh, is shops will just turn down buys or offer less money on stuff that doesn't move as well. Uh, and that's been very common is, you know, look, if I'm a store and I just don't have a legacy crowd, uh, I don't really need sneak attacks. I don't need show and tells. You know, those are cards that see some play in EDH, but they're not nearly as ubiquitous as some legacy staples like fetches, duels, force of will, yeah. stuff like that. Uh, so I may just tell you, hey, look, I'm not interested or I'm just going to pay you less money. Like my normal rates are this, but I can't sell this in store. So I'm going to have to pay you less money. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of transparency has been something that's been overall good for the economy because players are starting to have an understanding of, well, this may be the number, but I also have to add some deference to the fact that my LGS needs to survive, so I have a place to play. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and that's those are like the three big things that most stores I know do. Now, the other thing is obviously you go into multiple verticals. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, the LGSs that also stock comics, board games, and, you know, graphic novels, statues, whatever, role-playing games that stock all of that stuff tend to do a lot better in times like this because some of those actually lend themselves well to people just staying at home and not doing anything like board games. Mm-hmm. You know, board games exploded during the pandemic yeah. because nobody left their house. Yeah, yeah. And board games are a sunk cost purchase that pays dividends for years, basically, because you can play that game over and over and it's kind of a unique thing. Now, sure, that's true with Magic, but there's a lot more of a social and friend aspect in Magic, whereas board games, you can just do it with family and it doesn't matter. I mean, how many of us grew up with a weekly board game night? It's just what our families did. Yeah. Uh, so that's those are the main ways that LGSs I know uh, do to prepare and protect themselves. And I know you and I have hounded on multiple verticals for months now, yeah. so that's definitely one of the biggest ones. Let me ask real quick about... Um module books like D&D modules and uh, tabletop stuff. The, yeah. From my understanding, the margins on books disappeared the moment Amazon really came to be what it is now because they've been there forever. And you yeah. can't fight that price. So, you know, if your store's got to make 10, 12, 15% on top, you know, you no longer have to care about shipping as the purchaser. You just hit Amazon. But, so okay. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, one of the things that I've noticed a lot of the role-playing LGSs have done is they've gotten less into D&D and more into other role-playing games. Because, obviously, Wizards does fulfillment by Amazon. Yep, that's uh, not, yeah. You know, Paizo doesn't. So, Starfinder, Pathfinder, stuff like that, the minis, yeah. uh, RPG-adjacent stuff like Die. You know, stuff like that is really where some of those role-playing game stores have started to realize, okay, this is what we actually need to be in this, because you can't compete with wizards on those modules, on the core handbooks. And sure, there's the, like, luxury gift sets or whatever that some people buy, but I mean, honestly, most stores I see that get those get two, and one of them sits there for years. Yeah, it just becomes The other one was just a pre-order. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like the, the the true tabletop stuff, like the Warhammer stuff, always seems like somebody's going to light their money on fire. Either yeah. the LGS by stocking it until the person comes in and just like, that's the one, yeah. eight years after it was ordered. Or the players themselves, because it seems like they're just constantly churning through models. But I really don't yeah. know how the margins on that kind of stuff works. So that stuff, it's, it's all fixed. Uh, Games Workshop is one I will say that is incredibly good. Uh, about their margins. You're basically paying 50%, so you make, you know, a 40% margin after holding costs, all that. Uh, You don't make anything on, generally on pen and paper books, at least Wizards of the Coast ones. Now on, like, Paizo stuff, you sell it in-store for 30, and you pay anywhere from 15 to 21, depending on your account. So those have decent margins. Uh, Wizards of the Coast, though, I mean... They're selling stuff for what wholesale cost is yep. on Amazon, so yeah. it makes it very difficult. And then setting aside the specialty supplies, like your one-haired brush, do you know anything about paints? So paints are interesting. Uh, you can go through, if you go through Games Workshop for their paints, it has the same margin as everything else from Games Workshop. You're basically working, at, you're paying 50% 
charging 100. So you've got a good margin. Some of the other companies, like GTS carries a few lines, Southern carries a few lines. Margins are real weird on those. Okay. Uh, some of them are like 60 to 80%. And some of them you're making 10% after you sell it for retail. It's very interesting, and it's something that I've noticed, like, You'll see a lot of stores really only stock one or two lines outside of Games Workshop. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that typically have the 30 to 40% margin oh, okay. because players just like them. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the tabletop uh, LGS by me, actually, like, they spent a lot of time moving through paints to what their staff uses. And mm -hmm. once they settled on that and, this, and their staff found the paints that they liked for the commissions that they do those became the paints that they started selling in stores, I believe. And then the same thing happened with the hardware adjacent stuff. So yeah. all your brushes, your files, um, uh, spray brushes, etc. Uh, it's all basically staff tested stuff. So I, I was yeah. curious to see how that worked. So, you know, basically to run down to prepare, you're basically looking to cut back on spending where your margins are thinnest and prepare to move into opportunities where your margins are greatest either by coalescing as many events down to a similar time period as you can run a couple events on a day one day while all your staff's there like a saturday or sunday you know we'll do magic at this time and pokemon at that time and tabletop at this time and then also begin to set up your inroads for vending on tcg or amazon what have you as additional revenue streams yep right. and i i think that that's there's a couple LGSs here that typically don't sell on TCG because of how bad the fee structure is. Mm -hmm. uh, the last time that one of them did was during the last recession because they said, look, we have this stuff sitting here that like we have a sunk cost on mm -hmm. and we want to turn that into money so we can get stuff that will move in store. Yeah. So they opted into that instead. And I think that, you know, that's something you look at is what kind of marketplaces can you get into and use that to sort of start a churn yep. when you may not have the in-store churn there. And it's, you know, same thing, multiple verticals, modality is very important. And I think one of the other things that you can do when you want to make money short term in this, mm -hmm. and this is something you and I preach, is you make money by making margins, not by chasing the market. So if there's a card where you bought it for $5 when it was 8 and all of a sudden it shoots up to 13 lowest TCG listing is 12 throw it up there for 10 and get it out the door. You yeah. still make $8 at that point. Yep. And that's something that I think a lot of stores struggle with sometimes is because, again, a lot of people that get into this industry at the LGS level love the game. They love the hobby. They love whatever they're into. And they get that emotional attachment to it. And it's like, nope, just get it out the door. You want to own it exactly long enough to turn it into cash or more cardboard. Mm -hmm. Get out of it. And that's something that, for better or worse, economic downturns kind of vet out of the LGS ecosystem. Because uh, if you're not going to sell it, you're probably not going to stay open. Yeah. And so what about stores that are also like play spaces? Or sorry, not, let me rephrase I know a number of stores that have their storefront, and then they have, if you want to call it the play space or a tournament center, Not it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be on-prem, it could be off-prem. Sure. Uh, 
have you had any experience with stores like that? So there's a couple uh, that have large play spaces where they do open play some nights. They do trade nights others. Uh, one of them actually started their trade nights when they were struggling. And it actually saved the store in many ways because people would come in and trade, but it would also get people that were basically the invisibles in the store spending money. And that was one of the ways that they were able to attract those people in store and kind of get that was they were literally able to monetize the space without charging anybody a cent. Mm -hmm. Because when you get those people in there, the store also sold snacks and drinks. Guess what people are going to do when they're hanging out for two or three hours? Probably going to buy a soda or some Cheez-Its or something. Uh, and that was something that I think really helped them out. Now, I will say, excuse me, there's one store I know of, not here, but further south, that had their store on one side of the street, and then their play space was on the other side of the street. Yep. Uh, they rented out that play space during the lockdowns to an office, basically, uh, so that remote workers could go in there and work or whatever. Uh, and I think that's something, again, you've got to get creative with that stuff. Uh, if you've got a lot of overhead tied into it, you may actually need to close it if your events aren't firing, if people aren't showing up. You may need to look at structuring your tournaments a little bit differently to get people to show up to those things because, you know, Generally, I ascribe to the ogre school of thought with events, which is events are a loss leader. Uh, you may not be able to do that yeah. when your rent goes up or your interest rates go up on your credit cards or all of a sudden people just aren't spending as much money in your store. You know, whereas you used to gross $10,000 a week and now you're only grossing 7500 well, you may not be able to afford to give away $100 a night at tournaments hoping you make up for it in sleeves, dice, drinks, snacks, whatever. And especially when you have an open play space, figuring out how to monetize that is so much more important. Okay. Uh, I say this at every store I've ever worked at. You need to monetize every single inch of this store as much as you can because any customer-facing area in that store needs to generate income somehow. Mm -hmm. So, Okay. That's interesting to hear, especially when it comes to uh, continuing to utilize tournaments as a loss leader to bring people in. Because one of the things we're seeing a lot on social media is the pushback for RCQs. Yeah. Everybody knows because it's been made publicly available the cost that DreamHack is associating with their kits. So everybody knows what essentially they need to be paying entry into these events for. And yep. from what we're seeing... Prices vary anywhere from like 30 to north of 40 $45 USD for entry into these events. A lot of them also seem to be firing with between like 8 and 16 people. So it, you know, everybody's getting an immediate promo, which is now worth nothing. So it's a still a, a one-shot deal. One person gets the envelope and nobody is really breaking even as a layer when they hit top eight which yep. is not the greatest experience right now for a lot of people because what's happening is we're seeing the same thing that happened when the channel fireball took over grand prix and then magic fest which is 
the price went up kind of exorbitantly, but nothing changed. The players still received the same kind of treatment, the same tchotchkes and thank yous for coming in. You know, here's the the Batter Skull promo for the umpteenth time. Here's a Gristle Brand for the umpteenth time. Here's your Channel Fireball playmat, and don't yep. let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. You know, people are paying $30 for the chance at one blue envelope, and these events are being used not as a loss leader. They're being used as a way to generate revenue, which means people aren't coming back to those stores. So not only are players there for a one-and-done event because they're just chasing an envelope, they're also there for a one-and-done event because now they're soured on the yeah. store. And what you're trying to do in bringing people into these events, you are now working against because they're not going to come back. Like we talked about, I think, on the previous episode, where they come in yeah. and say, hey, I like you know the way this store lays out its case. It's got a, a higher-end case than I, I, I've seen in these other stores, so when I need X, Y, or Z, I'm going to go to that store, and I'm going to pick up what I need from that case. While they're coming in, they're paying much more than they expect to for these events, and now that's it. They're soured. They are a captive audience because of the event, and then that's it. Yep. You won't see him again. And there's it. It's also interesting because you have people soured for that reason, but it's also a lot of people. It's their first time in a lot of these stores, mm-hmm. uh, so being able to go above and beyond and deliver a good experience is huge. Because if you know you're struggling, well, people may go out of their way to come experience a good tournament, a well-run tournament, or a case that has stocked singles. So it's been wild seeing all of this backlash because as a store i don't understand like there's no secret here like you said we know what all of these kits cost don't try to vig your players because they know what they know what it costs you to run the event you know they they were transparent about it it's not like wizards when they had gpt kits and depending on the grand prix those kits fluctuated as much as a hundred or two hundred dollars from what the last one was and it's I, I don't get it because, you know, if things do continue down, delivering that good experience is so much more important. A yeah. little bit of a rant, sorry. Yeah, yeah. It, it all plays in. Though. There are more Magic players now than there, yeah. there have been in the past. But through the last couple of years, fewer LGSs because they've closed. As you mentioned, if you're not able to continue to monetize to find new verticals, find new... Uh, sell, uh, revenue streams. That's it. You're done. You know, especially during a lockdown. So you're going to need to bring in as many people as possible and compete for more Magic players, for more CCGers, TCGers, tabletopers, etc. It's just tangent aside, while relevant. Yes. Um, so we we've talked a, a little bit about kind of what's going on. Uh, in in the u.s and you know looking globally again as a vendor this doesn't really impact me that much um but what is unique now is we talked about this in the previous episode the strength of the dollar to the euro and the strength of the dollar to the yen as a vendor now opens up some interesting arbitrage opportunities we talked about this from the aspect of the collector and the financier well as a vendor, one of the things that my product specialists do is look 
at various websites for anything that we might need that is currently on our buy list. And we will go international if we have to because the deals are that good. Yeah. So as a vendor, the strength of our currency externally is kind of imperative for this kind of arbitrage. We ne- we very rarely send out. We, we, will, uh, we very rarely buy list out. We will make deals to shift product. Um, Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! usually being uh, the ones that move, though. Yu-Gi-Oh! is weird because Konami says if the cards are from a dedicated region, they are illegal in another region. Yep. And that is a hard and fast rule. So cards that are for the APAC region, or maybe because of the differences in language in APAC, it might come down to countries, are illegal elsewhere. In the States and vice versa. But there is still that trade between. Yeah. As an LGS, though, how does the global economy, the the global uh, MTG financing kind of play out? So this is something that's always pretty interesting to me because there are LGSs generally aren't aware of the impacts that the global MTG scene is having on them. After MH2 came out and Ragavan was a million dollars and Merktide was a million dollars, those were a million dollars because they were Japan cards. The LGS didn't necessarily know that. They weren't aware of that. They didn't need to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. They just knew the card was expensive because TCG charged a lot because there were Japanese vendors paying above TCG low. That was just the reality. And I think what you see develop out of that is, you know, people start to pay a little bit of attention to that as an LGS. Well, why is this card so much? I know it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. But why is it so much? And then they talk to their distro. Now, the distro may mention something about, ah, oh, well, you know, at least you're not in Japan. They only got half their MH2 allocation. Don't yell at me. And I think what really happens is you start to see some of the, I don't want to say higher-end LGSs. I'll say more fluid LGSs start to look at these international markets. They start to say... How can we not necessarily immunize ourselves against the effects of this, but understand them? Mm-hmm. And I think you see, okay, well, I know right now this card is expensive over here. Well, do I try to stockpile some? Do I try not to? It kind of just breeds an education or a desire to be educated on this stuff. I had a lot of LGSs reach out to me um, when. You know, Pete posted all the stuff he was selling for Star City. And he was like, oh, here's all this Commander Legends. And they were like, he's selling for below wholesale cost for us. This is ridiculous. How is this fair? And I'm like, guys, it's it's nothing against you. It's literally just like the global impact of this happening. And it's kind of an opportunity for them to educate themselves on what is actually going on here. Because a lot of LGSs by design, they're local. They don't really care about the market outside of their 20-mile radius or whatever the case may be. And it kind of makes some of those more fluid LGSs pay attention to this stuff. It lets them say, you know what, I'm going to see what's going on here. I want to know, is this a sign of something I need to be worried about? Yep. Is this something I should care about? And I think that's really how the global MTG finance scene, when the economy is bad, Mm -hmm. 
impacts the LGS because the luxury of the LGS is they largely don't have to care, right? Yeah. Uh, but if, like I mentioned earlier, they decide to start selling on TCG, all of a sudden, man, we're moving all of this card that we can't move in store to save our lives. Maybe we should pick up more of them because our players don't want them. All of our Meat Hook Massacres are selling online, but I can't move any of them in store. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm going to pay a little bit more to get them in store and then just sell them online. Yeah. And that's another opportunity that comes from that as well, is when you see people be forced to pay attention to a national landscape, to an international landscape, they'll start to adapt to it if they're a little bit more well-run than some of the others. Yeah, I like that example, too, because not, uh, at first it starts out like, okay, you got to be a little more savvy, you got to think like somebody who's financiering, and then it turns out to, well, no, it's a little more like a backpacker, somebody who's basically trying to be their own store, and then it comes down to, no, we're looking to serve our players better by understanding what's going on in different avenues that we can yeah. access ourselves, and thus treat our players better by paying more for cards that we can't move in-store. Or... Yeah. Maybe we can, but we can make a better margin on TCG players, so we split our our backstock. You know, yeah. we send four meat hooks to TCG, and we leave two in store because they're like forty five or fifty dollars for no good reason. Yeah, that's a lie. There's very good reasons. It's no great no. hunch, but it's a good. And I, 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 that's a very kind of clear example of what can happen at this point in time is is educating oneself and overall i think the lesson here is correct me if i'm wrong to continue to broaden your horizons as yeah. an lgs and make sure that your avenues for success are as many as possible you don't yeah. have to continue to look for more verticals if you can find more revenue streams you know move to tcg player or if you're on tcg player and it's not working for you try ebay try something else and I think it's a, a, a really powerful message. So. Anything else for the LGS before we cut out for the third episode? No. I think we're good. All right. So signing out for the second episode of three, we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, and YouTube. If you want to reach out to us individually, you are... At Thirsty Scissor. And I am at Halt I am Reptar. We'll see you next week.